Well, welcome everyone. Uh, today we've got a very special guest, which T will tell you about in a sec. But I just want to, I guess, start off by saying lots and lots happening in the Facebook group. Lots of interactions still happening. Uh, continue to get a few people in, a few more people coming in. So invite your friends, be part of the conversation. It's great to see the support uh, people are giving each other. Lots happening in there. So keep it going. Keep playing nice. It's, it's fantastic. And we've got over 200 people in there now. We've got 220-ish or something like that. I know. It's decent. That's 200 with GST. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's heaps. Um, unless you live in New Zealand, sorry, because there's more GST there. So apologies. Um, just want to also touch on Patreon. Uh, for those who do want to become patrons of the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, feel free. It can be as little as you want to give, um, either ongoing or it can be a one-off. Uh, we have had both provided to us. So thank you, everyone. As we say, everything goes back into the podcast. Everything goes back into what it costs for making the podcast, for storing the podcast, all that sort of stuff. There's a little bit involved in that. So any help would be much appreciated. T, tell us about today's guest. Yeah, well, today we've got someone um, I'm quite excited to have. Her name is Ange Barker. She's an Aussie living in the UK. And are you ready for this? You're going to be surprised. Don't trigger everyone. But she is a United Reformed Church minister. She's a qualified social worker. And she's the CEO of the New Begin Community Trust, which is a, a charity organization. So, Ange, g'day. Welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Hi, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be able to chat today. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. So, Ange, how about we start with you establishing your fundy cred, right? So how you became <laughs> a fundamentalist and how you were drawn into it all. Yeah, sure. So I was born in Australia, but my parents were Dutch migrants. And so as part of that kind of coming from Holland, uh, there was a kind of a whole group of people that were, they called themselves the Australian Reformed Church. I don't know if you've heard of them, in particularly in Victoria. So I grew up in the Reformed Church and um, I was a Calvinette. I didn't know that that had anything to do with Calvin. That was just so, um, I remember I told my husband when I was 20 that I was a Calvinette and it was the first time I realised what it had come from because it was just so normal for Dutch families. What's, what's a Calvinette? It's, I think it's like some churches have boys and girls brigade and it's kind of the Christian version of brownies and you learn your catechisms. And so it's a form of fundamentalism um, in my pre-Pentecostal days. Wow. When I was about 13, I was getting into a lot of trouble and um, I had a social worker and my social worker convinced my parents to send me on a Christian camp and their Christian camp was run by the Brethren Church, I think, at the time. And at that camp was the first time I kind of heard about this born-againer kind of thing. And I remember um, the guy talking was saying, you know, if you got hit by a bus tonight, would you... This was the 80s, mind you. So um, if you got hit by a bus tonight, would you, you know, would you be right with Jesus and would you be going to heaven or hell? And I was thinking, oh, this is a bit of bullshit. And I would be up the back of the campsite sniffing glue with some of the other kids. And then I think it was about the third day on this camp. It was down at Phillip Island and I got dumped in a wave. And I don't know if you've ever been dumped in a wave, but when you're under the wave, you do feel like you're dying you know it seems to go forever oh yeah the washing machine yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's right you're just being rolled around and um, I remember thinking oh shit if I die I'm going to go to hell so I remember when I got out of that wave 
the guy who was the speaker was actually at the beach with the group and I went and grabbed him and I said I need to become a Christian and that was very much kind of the evangelism approach wasn't it that you you were either you were or you weren't a Christian and you had to pray a prayer and so I prayed a prayer and I forced my friend who was on the camp with me to also pray a prayer and I remember nothing seemed to happen I was waiting for you know, lightning strikes and purple smoke. And and we kept checking with each other. Do you feel any different? Do you feel any different? And um, when I got back from that camp, my family noticed the difference in me. One, that I'm quite a potty mouth, still am, but um, that I seem apparently I didn't swear at all and I was nice to my sister. I think that was the two things they said they noticed. So I'd had that really kind of black to white conversion experience and became quite full on trying to convert anyone I could find. And my parents and the elders of the Dutch Reformed Church were quite concerned and they thought I'd become a raving Pentecostal. That was to come many years later. And so a few months later, I was actually excommunicated from the Reformed Church because I had got baptised. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Myself and the minister's son had tried to start this youth group and he was coming out of sort of heroin background. He refused to wear shoes. He was kind of long-haired hippie. So the two of us were kind of gathering young people and apparently making them, you know, crazy Pentecostals. And of course, we hadn't even heard of the Pentecostal bit at that stage. And um, so I was actually sitting in the church when they formally withdrew my membership from the church. So then my family would go off to church and I think I was about 14 at the time, and I would just be at home. And I remember walking around the corner and I found a Baptist church. So uh, as the story goes on, you'll find I've been a bit of everything. I'm what you call a Christian mongrel. And so I started going along to this Baptist church, and I remember they had this band there, and I think the band was called, was it The Switch or Guns of Fire or one of these Sydney kind of heavy rock bands. So I'd jump up dancing, get everyone dancing. Well, I didn't know that Baptists are not allowed to dance. So no one had told me that because I come sort of as a complete outsider I think the joke is why don't Baptists have sex standing up because it might lead to dancing yeah but anyway (laughs) so um so I was then um I'd been at that church for about six months and I was called before the minister on the Monday and I had to you know explain myself I was like it just seemed weird to me they had a rock band surely you're supposed to dance but anyway cut a long story short I was in that church for a while And slowly my parents actually kind of became born againers and my whole family joined that church about the same time as I was going out with this guy who was a new Christian and was at Melbourne Uni and he'd got himself involved in Students for Christ, which some of you may know of. And my parents said, look, he's going on this Students for Christ retreat. I was in my last year of high school and they said, I think you should go with him because we don't want him to become... They were really paranoid about Kenneth Copeland I don't even remember why, but I think the televangelism stuff had sort of started. and They had good reason, Ange. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I don't even um And I think they're worried you'd get demons if you spoke in tongues and that was kind of the vibe of it from memory. So I went along on this camp to make sure that this boyfriend didn't get led astray. And actually Tim Hall, who some of you will know, was the speaker at the camp or Tim Fall, as we used to call him. And um, Did you call him Tim Fall because he used to push people over? Yeah, that's right. And we used to do this thing. We have a prayer <laughs> meeting. I remember we had a prayer meeting. for. I, I later on became a staff volunteer with Students for Christ while I was at Bible College, and we were having this prayer meeting and Tim was due to come. And I think we all fell over to, like, wind him up. So we were all laid, you know, prone as he came in the door kind of thing. So there was a bit of humour around it. But I remember thinking... 
it's a bit weird, but you know, I'm not, I need to be really sincere and really trying to fit in, but always, I've always been, I think probably quite vain and quite worried about what people think of me and was kind of worried about how weird all that stuff looked as much as I was, you know, trying to believe it. So I was a bit of a, when I'm in that scene, quite into it, but as soon as I was away from it, I tried to be my normal bogan self, so to speak. So I had this quite dichotomized faith where I was in my super spiro bit at church and, uh, you know, those kind of penty kind of things. So you're using the language already, Ange, super yeah. spiro, bogan. Yep. No, no one's going to know that you live in England. <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't actually lived in Australia for about 20 years, have I? But anyway, um, so so long, cut a long story short, I actually had that kind of filled with the spirit encounter at that camp and came back feeling quiet. It was the first time I ever spoke in tongues, feeling quite like this is it. I found this thing. I joined the local AOG church around the corner from us, much to my family's horror, and I did become a, a raving penty for that period. So that was kind of sort of 17, 18, 19. So the Dutch reform were actually right about you. They were just a bit ahead. They were prophets. Call it prophetic, yeah, yeah, or pathetic. I'm not sure which we use. but So I think that was kind of what happened. So my family were all going to the Baptist church. I then kind of, as the black sheep that I was, was down the road at the AOG. And then I um, had been quite involved in, in Youth for Christ for a few years. Then I heard about this Youth Alive, and that was kind of, I think, around the time Youth Alive was starting in Melbourne. I never felt fully in, if I'm honest, with the Penty stuff. I went to AOG Bible College and I remember that there's a person I really respected there because I thought he had good sound theological training and he was my Old Testament lecturer and still a really good guy now. And But I remember thinking some of the other stuff was a bit off the wall but, you know, sort of putting up with it because I felt probably I wasn't a proper Penty yet and I wasn't having words of knowledge and all of that. So sometimes, if I'm really honest, I faked it, I, I think. But generally, my faith was sincere. I just found some of the stuff around the, the practice of it just didn't quite fit with who I was as a person. And I felt like I had to kind of be someone else. I think that's probably hindsight, being more aware. But at the time, there's just feeling like a lot of guilt all the time that I wasn't quite as Christian as I should be and I'd sneak off for a you know a sneaky smoke or a you know drop a, a swear word at work and then think oh shit I'm the worst Christian and you know there was a bit of that and then um then when I was at Bible college or bridal college as I should call it I went on a youth alive um youth leaders conference in Ballarat of all places and that's where I met my husband, Ash. Was, he became my husband. And he was another raving penty. He had the skinny leather tie and the shiny suit. I think it was the late 80s. We had the um, the boat shoes. It's all going to come back. If Crocs are coming back now, this is all going to come back, I promise you. And I remember thinking he had like black, um, blonde-tipped hair with checkers in it and a cross of shaved on one side and a leather, shiny leather jacket. And I thought, this guy's all right because I'm... I, you know, it was all about his personality, of course. We started going out and he was part of a charismatic Anglican church. And I actually um, started going along to that and found that was a much better fit. It had kind of the lovely Spiro singing and happy clappy that I liked that the Baptist church didn't have, but it didn't quite have all the weird pushing over and, you know, the hub, you know, the loud yelling at God and that kind of thing that 
sort of the AOG that I was from had. So your husband was going to an AOG Bible college, but he was actually still attending a charismatic Anglican church, whereas you were at an AOG church and an AOG Bible college. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then that Anglican church, actually, uh, you would know it well, um, became kind of the place where the Toronto Blessing um, kind of stuff was birthed in in Australia. And we never got into that. We started, we were working with kids on the street at that point. We, um, My mother-in-law was very involved in that, the barking dogs and the whole thing. And we used to take the piss of it, if we're honest, and get into kind of arguments with people from the church. But, you know, we were like, you know, it's just not for us, but, you know, but I remember, I mean, they were at that for years, weren't they? A couple of nights a week and it sort of tried to influence into the main service. In um, 1990, 91, 92, we were actually working for Youth for Christ as well as going to that church. Ash was actually doing his master's degree by that time. I think that was through Whitley College and Melbourne Uni. And I was at uni studying social work by then. And avoiding students for Christ who all kept trying to find me and feeling really guilty, yeah, <laughs> because uh, obviously they were really big on campus at the time and I was just sort of I'd sort of stepping away from that kind of more extreme panty stuff. What happened for you? How did you step away? You were saying before that you struggled a bit with some of those things and you faked it, um, particularly with those things that didn't sit more comfortably with you in the panty scene. What was it eventually... And how did it happen that you actually started to carve away? Okay, I think some pretty personal experiences. So um, just before we were married, Ash, who was a professional soccer player at that stage, he used to get paid 50 bucks to play soccer. So when you say that in England, everyone thinks, you know, he he earned millions, but there you go. Um, he got chronic fatigue, well, glandular fever quite badly, which developed into chronic fatigue. And, you know, we really believed in healing back then. And so we had all the elders come and pray over him. We anointed him with oil. I remember some of the things I got. I When I was 17, I went on a missions trip to the Solomon Islands and I was given this wooden paddle. And I remember that, that the general wisdom was that that maybe contained evil spirits so we had to get rid of the wooden paddle and we tried everything and actually he stayed unwell for five years. The theology that we had been taught and our experience started to not match up. When he was anointed with oil, was it extra virgin? Because I, yeah. I find <laughs> that if it's not extra virgin, then it just it can't work. Purity culture, is that what you're saying? It has to <laughs> yeah. be pure. Not just a virgin, you've got to be extra virgin. Extra virgin. Yeah, Cold-pressed. Yeah. Yeah, it should be sold at Kurong. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that happened. And then at the same time in working for Youth for Christ, we were meeting all these homeless young people. And one of my colleagues, I write about this actually in my book, was bringing, was working with women in Fairly Women's Prison at the time that was still running. And bringing, these women were coming out of prison with nowhere to live. And we had like a three-bedroom house in Dingley, lovely house. And we are like, we just took the Bible fairly literally thought, well, if you someone's homeless, you should offer them a home. So we just started taking people in. And the stuff we were seeing, the struggles in the lives of the people we were starting to love, really started messing with our theology and took us on that whole journey of theology of brokenness, really influenced by um, liberation theology. And um, a big key part of that was we um, were given a foster son who was 11 and we went on a journey with him 
into mental health and addiction and he eventually died of an overdose at 18 and I think that was kind of the final you know you couldn't have a kid that was more prayed over than that kid and yet his life got worse and worse and actually a lot of the time he thought he was Jesus that was part of his psychosis so you'd go and visit him at the psych ward and he'd be in um confinement because he had beaten up the Holy Spirit because they were having a fight. One kid thought he was the Holy Spirit. And then you felt like just proper weirdos because we were Christian workers. And I think they thought we had made this kid a weirdo. But for some reason in his psychosis, he had got very into, he used to follow Ash around to Bible college and to all his meetings. And he used to like, he memorized the Jesus video. And so we started, (laughs) so we probably did make his psychosis worse in some ways but I think that was kind of the culmination when we realized that this kind of theology that the church teaches and the reality of who we thought this Jesus we were following just didn't match at all and and that's kind of been the journey of the last 30 years and I think we're still in that journey. What did that do to you to the faith that you'd built up and I guess through the Dutch Reformed Church right through the Baptist to the AAG and then when you were currently what did it do? Did it did it solidify your faith? Did it really rock your faith? Was it something that it caused you to doubt? What what happened for you? Um, I think for me, I was I'm kind of an angry young man type person. Being Dutch, I'm very like black and white, very judgmental and critical. So I think I was angry at the church for a long time, angry at Christians, and even now. My household will tell you that I have absolute grace for someone who's just robbed me or smashed up our car or, you know, done, you know, staggers in drunk and falls all over. But, and I have, you know, constant grace and understanding about the childhood trauma they've experienced. But if someone who's a Christian or from the church does the smallest thing wrong, I just have no time for them and I write them off. I have that quite, yeah, just, so I think that, came from that I think just a lot of anger that the church I think had misled me I felt very angry that especially some of the prosperity teaching that come to Jesus and everything will be right and that God loves you and he gives you you know that whole thing I prayed for a car park and God gave me a car park but he didn't give a shit about the old lady in the rain who doesn't even have a car who's had to struggle so I started to see some of that and I was just thinking this is bullshit how come you know, and I still, I'm fully, and I know trigger warning, fully in the camp, consider myself a follower of Jesus. I hate using the word Christian because I think that means a whole lot of bullshit that I don't embrace. Um, but I remember how can they have changed the message of being a follower of Jesus to such an extreme that it doesn't represent anything like the life that this Jesus that I profess to follow lived and and so I was in an angry stage for a long time. Yeah. So, and I think it just also made me think about it's really easy to define yourself by what you're against, but what was I actually for? You know, what? and even now I ask that question. I really can tell you very quickly, as is evident, what I'm against, but what is it that I'm actually for? And that's a much harder thing to actually be conscious of, isn't it, and a much healthier place to be, which is what I love about your podcast is it's creating that space for people to talk about yes the trauma the church has been and and that kind of whole religious experience has been but is it what is it we're for as well what are the positive things that we believe and now as human beings and what is it that you know some of those horrible negative experiences there's still something positive that you guys seem to draw out of them on your podcast which I find extraordinary 
you know, you even made me listen to Christian music again. My my son is just very upset. He says, it's just crap. What are you doing? (laughs) But I just started to think about, you know, I'd written so much off, but what is it that I'm for? And there was some good in some of that stuff. So it's worth maybe me having a look at that. So I've got a question for you, Ange. A lot of people come to that point where they're angry and, you know, they're angry at the church and they're seeing all this hypocrisy and they walk away. But you didn't. So, so tell me about that. Why did you stay? How did you stay? And, and, and what did it take you to become? Because you've obviously become a very different kind of Christian to what we saw as fundamentalists. Yeah, I think I would say that I did life with the poor and the broken for the last 30 years and that made me stay. And I relearned my theology and I relearned my view of God through the brokenness of the lives I chose to immerse myself in. And um, and I think, you know, I've got quite loads of friends who haven't stayed and loads of friends who were never of faith. And they say, oh, how can you believe in this stuff? And I, I think about almost every week and I think I have to believe there's something better because the shit that I see that happens to people that is just so wrong and unfair and that was really, really exacerbated living in the slum in Thailand. I have to believe there's got to be something better and so I hang on to that and I think that's ultimately what's made me stay and then I think I do see God show up and, you know, I I do have these kind of supernatural experiences fairly regularly, I think, probably more regularly than when I was faking it in the in the Pentecostal scene, I, I see these really, you know, that give you goosebumps type experiences. Um, that has to be some kind of higher power, some supernatural being. And so for me, I choose to believe that's God at work, his spirit at work. I'd like to hear more in a sec about um, you touched on the your work in the slums of Thailand. So I think that's really important to, to hear more about that. You got to a place, though, where there had to be something, there had to be a purpose, there had to be a higher power. A lot of people, as as T said, will then completely just turn off or go atheist or go whatever. Why Why just stick with Jesus? What, what stands out for you about Jesus that it's something that you didn't go, you know what, there's plenty of other things. I can be a good Buddhist, I can be a good Hindu, I can be whatever, but for you, you're stuck with Jesus. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think probably some real experiences in my life that made me not doubt that God was real. And I was very attracted to the actual life of Jesus and how he lived. And that really resonated with the stuff I believed we need to do to change the world. So feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take the homeless into your home, visit those in prison and in you know those who are sick. And I just thought to me that was even in my professional social work, is seeing that society is really so broken up into two camps, isn't it? It's the haves and the have-nots, the people that capitalism works for and the rest of the world it doesn't work for. And so I felt like Jesus was, you know, even I think actually, if I'm really honest, most Christians who hang in have actually walked away, even if they've just never said it and even if they're still going to church. I think loads of people go to an atheist point even if they're sitting in church every Sunday, when they have teenagers that start to harm themselves, when their marriages break up, when bad things happen. But I think the social pressure to not verbalise that keeps people looking like they're Christian 
when maybe they're not feeling it. And so I think I did probably walk away internally a number of times, but God drew me back. And I think that just comes from that I'm really passionate about trying to make a difference in the world. And I just think Jesus's life was a brilliant model of that. And not just his life as written about in the Bible, but a lot of the historical documents that talk about, you know, some of the, the religious orders over the throughout history that, you know, took in homeless and and addicted people and that helped the poor and that were out there working with lepers when people did would, you know, the mainstream church was too scared to touch them. So I think it was really the life that Jesus lived just like the life that some of the kind of missionaries I read about lived, I thought that that sounds like a really radical way to do life and I want to do it. And so I think that's what really attracts me to the teachings of Jesus. From our perspective, we have a lot of respect for what you and, and your family and also I dare say a lot of the your friends as well that are, that are involved in this kind of work, the stuff that you're doing. Talk us through that journey and talk us through how you started, you know, with, with the poorest of the poor here in Australia and then branched out and started working around the world. Okay, so um, when we were working with Youth for Christ, our job at the time, and it will show you that it was the early 90s, was to reach out to marginalised young people from broken homes and, and with drug issues and all sorts of things and to disciple them into the church. And so, you know, essentially that was, remember, I don't, you guys are a bit younger than us, but there used to be this little book you'd have, like a little flyer, The Bridge to Life. I don't know if some of your listeners may relate to that, which was a little tract people used to, on the street, used to Bible bash people. And, I mean, that was kind of the era that you would meet people, tell them about Jesus and then bring them along to the church. And what happened to us is we were working with kids in Springvale, in the big housing estate in Frankston, different areas, and we started to realise that why would we want to bring these people along to the church, which... I found boring myself and also was just a cultural clash because the church in Australia is largely, you know, upper middle class to upper class and the kids we were working with were, you know, euphemistically working class, which means no one works, and um, and it just didn't fit. And I myself, coming from that kind of grown up in a housing estate, come from a, you know, my dad worked in a factory that it just it was a big leap for me to to become Christian. And a lot of my Christian identity was becoming middle class so that I could fit in, basically. So we started to get excited about the thought of doing mission in Australia, reaching out and seeing, not trying to push these kids into the church, but trying to see churches emerge in, of the poor, run by the poor. And then, obviously, that's problematic when you work for a youth organisation because you want to work with whole families. So we left YFC and we started our own mission organisation called Urban Neighbours of Hope. And then very quickly we realised that how we were doing it wasn't really sustainable. And so we looked at how could we sustain that and I won't go into the details, but we decided to become a Protestant order and take vows. And, you know, I've, I'm being a fundamentalist at whatever I do, so we became extremist at that in a sense. You know, we took a vow of poverty and we took a vow not to leave the community more than twice a month so that we're really present and, you know, all of those kind of things. And then that really helped us be really present in the whole kind of heroin, street heroin dealing days in Springvale where the streets were flooded with China white and there were, you know, I think in one month there was 400 ODs around Melbourne because there was some uncut heroin and um, quite a large number of them were in Springvale. So we were right in the middle of that and um, just felt 
really passionate about trying to fix people. It still very much was that kind of theology that we had the answer in our pocket and we wanted to fix people. And then as we start to journey with people, you realise a level of brokenness in yourself and you start to be a bit more honest about that. And I think I see that as God was at work in our lives. Um, I had always wanted to go overseas as a missionary and so did Ash. And uh, I won't go into all the details, but eventually we ended up in a slum in Bangkok as part of the same organisation doing the same work and we lived in a little tin shack. We lived there for 12 years and our our daughter was five when we moved there and our son uh, was born there and he lived there till he was 10. And then after 12 years there, we moved to the UK, which is where we are now. We've been here for seven years. So basically the sort of work we do has always been the same work. It's just in different geography. So tell us about some of those some of those times in the slums in Thailand. I mean, you sort of, you brushed over it, um, but you, you were there 12 years. What are some of those things that are imprinted on your mind? Well, I think very quickly moving to a Buddhist country in the middle of a slum, just being totally immersed in kind of the poverty and pain and not being able to speak the language and really do anything was kind of the final leaving for me of my fundamentalism because I no longer could come with that I've come to save you type approach. And I was already uncomfortable with that. But I think those years in Thailand, certainly the first few years, really made me pushed me out the other side of that kind of Christian cookie cutter, so to speak. And I was working in an AIDS hospice, which initially was just a little tin shack in the slum. And basically my very successful ministry was that everybody I touched died. People just came there to die. So it was pre-free AIDS medication. I, I write about it in my book. I said, I think I fancy myself as Mother Teresa, you know, type, but I'm really just not that nice. And I remember I'd be in the AIDS hospice on my four-hour shift and the whole time I'd be just checking my watch thinking, oh, shit, when's this going to be over, you know. And um, and I did that kind of each afternoon, went to language school in the morning. And um, literally people died. And, and my job was to, once they died, because it was so hot, the body fluids, um, the body fats and everything turned to fluid and leak out of all the orifices very quickly. And so my job was to plug up all the bits with cotton wool and and um, put them in the body bag and then we'd change the bed and literally within an hour the next person would be there waiting to die. That was the first two years I worked there till um, I was about eight months pregnant with my son. And I think that just the hopelessness of that and realising that actually I am not in control and doesn't matter what reading I do and what theology I have I can't fix this and um, so that really I think really has shaped me in these last 20 years I think that has really affected how I view my my life and the world and just really starting to see that the world is a dangerous and sad place but there are signs of hope amongst it and the best we can hope for is to for me is to carry a little bit of that hope um, where people have lost hope for themselves, but we can't fix it. Yeah, sitting behind beside people as they die constantly, day in, day out, did that cause any rocking of your faith? Did that cause you to go, God, you're a pretty shit God? If this is the suffering that is happening around me, if you're this all powerful God, then why don't you intervene? Why don't you actually help these people rather than be just waiting for them to die? Yeah. And I mean, I think already before moving to Thailand, we'd seen enough death. Our own son 
as you know being one of those death death and suffering that we had really been able to develop a theology of suffering and and you know even I'm starting to unpick that myself now he's had a healthy thing you know but that you know suffering is part of this world it's everywhere and good and bad things happen to both good and bad people and I think the Buddhist kind of stuff that was we we're really learning about was that you know they would say oh something bad has this family have done something bad in their past life and you know I remember one thing that struck our neighbour used to our daughter just took to the community like a duck to water she learnt tie very quickly and was embraced by all the local families and they would always want to take her off with their kids on a motorbike now there was no helmet wearing in those days really I mean it was the law but no one was enforcing it but we said no she has to wear a helmet we bought her a motorbike helmet said you know she can go on the motorbike but I remember they would say to me but you're a good family nothing bad will happen to her and and I just that resonated back to kind of some of the Penty stuff that actually that's not dissimilar to saying, well, I'm going to pray for a car park for me. I'm not going to give a crap about the poor old lady in the rain. I was like, no, actually, somebody drunk will hit your motorbike and you'll all fall over and you're all good people. But so so we would have these discussions backwards and forwards and they would always say, oh, you're just a dumb farang, which is what they kind of call foreigners a farang. And or they'd say, oh, farangs are different. And, you know, and so I just was on this learning journey, just trying to understand what they believed and then what I believed. And, and um, yeah, there were times, and I, I was times, and I've said this to Thai people, I've said this this week, we've got a young woman dying this week, and it's just horrible. And I've said to a whole lot of people at our drop, you know, I was just like, I just don't understand. I get so angry at God that he allows this to happen. But then part of me questions, is he really in control? You know, I ask that question. I don't think that's a wrong question to ask. Is he really in control? Who is in control of this world? But it doesn't make me lose hope. I have to have some hope. And even if that's a false hope, that's what I need to keep going and to keep doing what I do. But, yeah, definitely times I'm being angry at God. That's the sort of Christianity that we can't have a problem with, if that makes sense that we can't stand here in our glass houses and and throw stones at you because you're doing amazing work, which is why we wanted to have you on here. So I, I want to hear more about some of these things that you that you did, whether it's in Thailand or whether it's in England. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess one of the things that coming out of fundamentalism really helped me work out what I was for, we developed this kind of phrase that we said, the cost of our friendship is not your soul. And we've been really clear on that. And this is where the church doesn't get us often as an organisation, is that we will feed home hungry people or take in foster kids or help somebody have an operation, but we're not doing that to try to convert them. And I think that is the difference when you move from fundamentalism, that as a Christian, I feel like my job, I'm called, left here on this earth, if that's what I believe my purpose is, to make a difference in this world, to live as simply as I can so that other people have a chance to live out their dreams, to use my resources with those who are often cut out of society in terms of finances and opportunities, and, and to not build up treasures for myself, but to try to see a community transformed. And I see that as beyond just an understanding of spiritual transformation that that is people living abundant lives here and now living out 
their dreams. And so social enterprise is a massive part of that, seeing skills that people have and gifts they have that because they're not middle class and wealthy and educated, they've never been recognised for those skills. So we find those people and those skills and try to set them up in their own businesses and um, we become their best customers and, you know, just try to create all the infrastructure we can so they can succeed. So, um, but we do that not to convert them, that's really clear. We run Christian programs, but they're very clearly separate to our social programs. And and we've actually asked lots of volunteers to not come back who just don't get that because we're not running a drop-in centre so that people can be Bible bash. We're running a drop-in centre that so that lonely, isolated people can develop family and friends and a place to belong. And those that want to do the Christian bit, that there's opportunities to do that. We have a Sunday group, we have a Wednesday night group, but it, you're not more in if you join those groups. We want it to be really clear that if you're Muslim, if you're Buddhist, if you're Sikh, or if you're atheist, that you're just as in and you're just as valid a leader in our organisation as those who are part of the Sunday gathering or whatever. And that's been a really hard line to hold as you do sort of justice and and kind of poverty relief work because there's so much understanding that if you're a Christian doing that, you're doing that so that people will come to know Jesus or be a follower of Jesus. And I think that's exploiting people's loneliness and isolation and poverty, that if you're a homeless guy on the street in Birmingham today, you will have become a Christian on average nine times in the last four years because anyone who wants to help you wants to help you so that they can get you to pray the prayer and come to the church. What we say is we want to help you and the condition is that it's not so that you become a Christian. It's because you are a human being who doesn't have a roof over your head and you deserve one. So that is kind of, the, the you know, the social action evangelism is quite separate. How do the other Christians see you because you know we were talking about this bni and in getting you in and saying i reckon a lot of christians are going to say she's not a real christian she doesn't say the right things do the right things tell us about that uh so it's interesting because in australia i would never wear a dog collar in the uk i sometimes wear my dog collar and that's partly because people given how i look and how i speak and the fact i might be seen with a cigarette in my hand here and there you know, maybe don't know I'm a Christian. So I work with street sex workers and often I'm mistaken as one of the workers. So so sometimes that helps, just solves a lot of awkward moments. It's always interesting people say, oh, when they come to see our work, oh, and who, who have, how many have become Christians? And then I know straight away they're still in that fundy camp and then I go off my rave of we don't use that label, are you Christian or not Christian? We use that label of you're my family, you're my friend, you're welcome to be part of everything we're part of. Some of those things you're saying, and sounds like you're a universalist, that there's many ways to come to God. I mean, I'm not putting a label, but is that what you're trying to say? Strangely, no, yes. I, I, um, I'm I, still much more um, fundy than that. Yeah, so that was always my big fear. I'm not going to become a universalist. I don't want to be liberal. and And I think I'm not. I think I believe that. The God that I follow is probably for me, I would say, yes, I, I want people to be followers of Jesus. I feel like the teachings that I see that Jesus has in the life he lived is something that I really believe in. But it's also not for me to tell people what they should believe. I don't for one minute believe, like I used to believe in the 80s and 90s, that I have the power to change someone's belief. I think you can change somebody's 
rhetoric that they say, but the belief is so deep held within your, you know, every cell of your body that I think only a supernatural power can change that belief and that's not my job and I won't let the church guilt me into seeing that as my job. Um, and so I actually think it was interesting. When I worked in the AIDS hospice, it was run by this amazing Catholic priest and he said, and this is probably where I sit now, I think at the time I remember judging him and thinking he was a bit liberal, that don't you believe that if a Buddhist person cries out for help, that our God is big enough and powerful enough to answer that prayer regardless of who they're crying out to? And that's kind of where I sit, that I believe that God, if God is love and loves everybody and created everybody in his image, that whether you call out to Buddha or to Elvis or to... Muhammad or to Jesus that God is God's not he doesn't care he's not that sensitive and you know he I say he she probably um you know and God's love will be there for anybody regardless of who they call out to and you talked about Richard Raw being a mentor yep and I kind of feel he's quite a universalist he would probably say he's not no he would say he's not I think yeah but he, I mean, a lot of what I believe has really come from, he's really helped put the words, him and Brian McLaren are two people, I think, that when they speak, I was like, oh, God, someone else thinks like I do. I also think it's a matter of, you know, when I speak in churches, I think it is a matter of the emperor's new clothes. You know that book where everyone was saying the emperor, he has his lovely clothes and it took a little boy to say, actually, I, he's naked, I can't. I actually think if people, when you, it's, you know, I remember once saying, oh, I really hate praying. And I thought, oh, I probably shouldn't be saying that in a church and everything. But when people say, oh, we've got a prayer day, I just think, oh, shit, kill me now, you know, because I find that the hardest thing to do and it's boring and there's lots of other things. I really love a nice penty worship singing and all that. I love all that, but I really hate praying. And I remember so many people came up to me later, including the minister of that church, and said, so do I, but I would never have dared say it. And it's so comforting to know other people feel like that. And I just think if we called bullshit a bit more, which is what I love that you guys do, calling bullshit a bit more, but not in a cynical judgment way, which I feel like is what your podcast really holds well, that people will find the faith that works for them, that fits who they are, regardless of how it looks, because it's just no one's willing to call bullshit often that we, we everyone's too scared to bring down thunder and lightning or whatever it is. And certainly in England, people are so polite. You like that about our podcast that we we call bullshit on things. But for us, there isn't a risk in that. We do it. We're out of the fold. We're out the other side. We're both really clear on that, that we're not part of a church or the church now. You're in it. You're calling bullshit on it or you're in it. You've got a lot more to risk. A lot more is on the line for you. That must create quite a vulnerability for you or are you at the point where you just don't give a shit you're going to call it anyway probably I'm at that point I'd have to say my husband's more vulnerable because his income comes from Christian donors more than mine does mine is through the charity and also as our costs have gone down we need less to live on so I don't mind if the donations go down I've got a daughter who's graduated from uni and off doing her life and only one kid left at home I think I'll call it more now, not so much I don't give a shit. I think probably when I was living in Thailand, I got to the point where, you know, you go back and speak at churches in Australia. I remember I'd come from the slum. We had a 
14-year-old girl with Down syndrome who'd been starved to death by the family and I'd had to run a Buddhist funeral for her because I felt like if I didn't run a funeral, it would show the community that she was worthless. And so the only funerals you can have are Buddhist ones. So we ran and paid for a Buddhist funeral. We caused a little, caused a little bit of a debate within our organisation, but I was like, nah, this means something different. And then I went and spoke at this church and I remember I got there and I was a bit ragged from the air being on the flight. And the song was some song that just went, bless me, bless me, bless me, Jesus, or something. And then, or the words were just like that. Over, And I just wanted to scream, you are already fucking blessed. You know, why are you singing this song? And so back then it was a little bit like I didn't give a crap. But now I actually give a big crap because I'm so sick of seeing really good young people leaving the church because they're gay and they've been rejected or because they're rough and they don't fit the mould. Our community needs people who want to love them, who want to, you know, we're overwhelmed by the needs every single day. You know, we're seeing hundreds of people a week and there's, you know, 10 of us trying to hold it all together sort of thing. And we want more people to come and join this and live this amazing life that we love. So I actually care that the church, I say the church is advertising stretch jeans and selling flares. You know, I'm quite intentional in calling the bullshit now. So, and also I've got a bit more mature in how I do it. So you don't want to piss people off with you. You want them to hear the message and, you know, so I try to be a bit more careful. Don't smoke in the church car park, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> One last question for you, Ange, because we're coming to the end of time. A big cross-section of our audience are actually still holding on to some kind of Christian faith. And so we would not be honouring to them if we didn't have someone like you come along. So I want you to think about them, that that there's people in our audience who still believe in God, they've had enough of fundamentalism, they've been hurt, whatever, or, or it's just not working for them or theologically, whatever. What's your advice to them? So they're sitting at a point now where they're saying, I know what I don't stand for. How am I going to find meaning in this Christian faith or how am I going to find meaning with my with my life as a Christian? What would you say to them? Well, firstly, that you're not alone because the biggest denomination, the biggest church in the UK, the biggest religion are people who have left the faith. So there was a study that came out about three years ago. That is the biggest religion, even bigger than Christianity and Islam in the UK, which is would be surprising to know. I think Australia may be similar. Um, so and my thing is don't blame God for the church because the church is absolutely not what I see God as being represented by. Um, but the other thing is I think that if God created you who you are, that he is, and if I believe what I believe, is God is powerful enough to speak to you without needing anyone else to tell you what to think and believe and just to call out to him and he'll show up. That is honestly what I believe. And also to find other people that allow you to just be who you are and to journey together. We talk about in community work we do, we say you alone can't do it. Um, but you can't do it alone. And I think that's very true around all spiritual journey. And that's why church has cropped up in the first place in places of religion and worship is that spiritual journeys were never meant to be just a, a vertical thing. They were always meant to be communal and horizontal. And that's why the Bible makes so little sense, I think, in the West, because it's such individualised culture and they individualised kind of a spiritual relationship. And it was always meant to be communal and with others doing life with others where lots of people had lots of different beliefs and and the vertical and the communal, the horizontal were all to go together. So, yeah, I think probably I'm more passionate about my faith 
but I think letting go of anger at the church because it's ultimately really messed up individuals that have hurt people. And most people I speak to are not mad at God. They're mad at the church and the individuals. Listening to you guys' story, I mean, your mission trip, I mean, we know of stories like that, taking people's money off them and making people poor. And if you've seen the um, latest Hillsong thing, I think you talk about it in one of your podcasts. Have you seen that? The movie God's Gone Viral. And they talk, they just show absolute exploitation of vulnerable people by Christians making themselves rich and famous off the back of broken and vulnerable people. And that's what hurts people and damages people and ultimately turns them off God. But Christianity isn't the only religion that's done that. There are many Buddhist temples in Thailand filled with Ferraris and monks who have, you know, been abusing um, junior monks. And there's a power, I think, power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts and organised religion creates a perfect medium for that not just Christianity so I think that also helped me stay in is seeing the corruption in other faiths and other organisations peace organisations and um, you know other animist kind of groups that I got involved with have just similar abuse and power structure issues it's not it's yeah it's not God's fault we could talk for hours and extract a lot more stories out of you but thankfully thankfully you've written a book um, which people can read more about those those stories and about your life and about your journey and I've, I think I've said this before when we're introducing that we're going to be talking to you I think it's a fantastic book name missionary not just a position will not be found in Kurong or word bookstores <laughs> I, I doubt but where do people get hold of a copy of it uh, it will go live on Amazon on the 15th so of September, so you can just order it on Amazon. And, I mean, I, I think my book was a little bit of my penance for my years of fundamentalism and even writing it helped clarify to me what did I still believe and what do I not believe and shows some of my doubt and indecision. And so I've tried to be as honest as I can, um, which then when I actually physically held the book in my hand, I had a massive panic attack that made me vomit. <laughs> I was like, shit, can't take it back now. Um, so because one thing when you know your audience and you can control who reads it or, you know, who hears your stories, but they're out there now. There's a few chapter titles I might be regretting, but yes. No, it's great. And and we were both very lucky enough to get an advanced copy and um, I've certainly started reading it. I'm sure that T, he's more of a voracious reader than I am. He's probably read the whole bloody thing in a night knowing him. There's been a few edits since the copy you guys have got, so some of the more cringy stuff has been taken out, hopefully. There's been lots of um, second book titles coming through from our less respectful friends. I think it was Bending Over Backwards for Jesus and a few things like that. Okay, very good. It's been a good episode. We really appreciate you being a part of this, Ange, and we appreciate you bringing in an, another place where, you know, teenage fundies can end up. We're really glad to have you on it. And I know that B and I both very much respect the work you do and very much respect you. So thank you for being a part of our podcast. Well, thanks guys for doing this podcast. I think it's so needed. It was interesting. I was on a, a different podcast who were much more evangelical and they've been doing some podcasts and they said their most popular one over the whole lockdown was their one on post-Christianity. And it's just very interesting that the growing movement of people who are able to say what they really think now about coming out of and I just think it, there's got to be so many more healthy places like you guys have to talk about it 
be next week we've got another one of our little story episodes so i'm looking forward to to jumping into that and hearing from you and you asking me those questions so how did that make you feel i'm looking forward to that next <laughs> next week well you know i'm interested in how people feel all right so i'm going to cue the music and we'll see everybody next week